0: Hey everyone, welcome and thanks for joining us this week for our episode of Wild Wild What the Facts, the podcast where two friends talk about the crazy, surprising, and hilarious things that happen in history. I'm Lauren. And, and that I'm is Jared. Yeah, that's Jared. Oh, sorry, I jumped on. the gun there. <laughs> hey, I didn't mess up the intro completely today, so that's a you know, there's always room for to. That's true. Today we also have a silent listener. If you remember from our last episode, I mentioned that um, my friend might be helping us with our audio and his screen name is Stiffy Oats. We'll keep him as Stiffy Oats, our secret helper. Um, so Hopefully he'll make us sound a little better for everybody today. Hopefully. Yeah. We're working All right. on it. Well, how was your week? It was good, actually. It's really, really yep. good. Yeah. I get my vaccine, the final vaccine on Tuesday. And I'm pretty Ooh. sure about it. That's mm-hmm. exciting. I don't really have anything else super exciting to report though. It's just normal, quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear you. How was yours? Um, well, I'm yeah. still very unvaccinated and I had the stomach too. Oh, yeah, I think you told me about that. Yeah, so. Are you feeling better now? Yes. Good. Yes. Much better. Good. Yeah, when we, like, called each other earlier this week to kind of, like, talk about things and to record that little three-minute, like, hey, sorry, we suck at everything Uh, episode, and you sounded a little bled. I'm glad. What's (laughs) What's funny was I was going to delete that episode, but you keep talking about it, so now I have to leave it up. Oh, the minute one. Oh well. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's fine. That's fine. It, it'll it'll always remind us that we had a really rough. Weekend. It could just confuse people. We could just leave it up to be like, what the heck is everyone? talking about? Well, we need to leave fifty shout out in. But... That's true. It did make well, it day. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to ruin his day by taking him away. No <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, well, actually, our silence partner just said, I'll riot if you take it down. So I guess we can't take it down. <laughs> yeah. And we Yeah. We'll have to keep it up forever. Well, today we are talking about crazy alcohol stories. Things that have happened in history that involve alcohol and crazy. Medicine, I guess. Not things that have happened to us. No, we will not be sharing our crazy alcohol stories. But probably wouldn't be that great to listen to. No, not at all. But anyway. Jared has um, much more crazier much more crazier, the crazier, stories than I do. Well, yeah, I've been around some nuts people in my day. But anywho, so we're talking about alcohol. Uh, I believe I'm up to bat. You are first today. Okay, cool. So my story is going to take us to Munster, Germany. And, uh, Munster currently, like modern day Munster, is a mix of modern and medieval, as many towns in Europe are, because, you know, something that happened 70, 80 years ago, where stuff blew up and build uh, things. So, um today yeah. in Munster, you can visit the Westphalian State Museum of Art, and the culture, and cultural history, all the way down to Wetter Zoo in Munster, or even the historical city hall. But our point of interest is the Saint Lambert's Church and uh it is an absolutely gorgeous style cathedral and it's still active today and part of the, the diocese there. Um I'll end up tweeting a link if I haven't already to the wiki page for this place. Uh but there's some really gorgeous photos of it. Okay, and we actually just discovered that we have a German listener unless somebody's using like some weird DPN that puts their i p s like IP address in Germany. But if you're still listening, hi, I'm sorry about our German and my German, especially Westmen. But Yeah, your Germans better than <laughs> Well, I so, lived there for four years, so I hope so. Oh, well, that's a good reason for having you. sharp <laughs> and on point. Yeah. Uh, so to this day, three steel cages hang, hang from the facade of the church. And in 1535, John of Leiden, Bernhard Knifferdaling, and Bernhardt, were captured and tortured for leading a rebellion in the city, and to send a message to all other would-be dissenters, their bodies hanged from these cages for fifty years. So they didn't just want to like torture them and punish them and throw them up there for a few days. No, they were there for the really long. So, um, so before these men were captured in the city of uh, the city of Mun- Munster had been under siege. But before we get there, I'm going to have to briefly discuss the Rebellion and what actually got to the Siege of Munster. So if you want the full detailed story, which I really recommend listening to because it's absolutely crazy, uh listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history episode called Prophets of Doom." It it'll blow your mind. So okay. That go and check that out. Next, Jeff yeah. right. pulled up a picture of that cathedral, and it is absolutely stunning. So you were correct right. about that. So, in 1530, Munster had several factions at odds, with, at odds with each other. It was a self-governed city. However, the Catholic Church feuded with the city council for control of things as the Catholic Church was. They power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the rich aristocrats were also at odds with the lower class folks because the lower class was actually doing fairly well in Munster and they started closing the economic gap. Which if you're a rich person, that's not totally good. Yeah, and four people get less poor. right, and then not to mention, this is only about fifteen years, I think, after Luther nailed the ninety five pieces to the uh door of the church for the Protestant Reformation, okay. so Europe has been just topsy-turvy because of that as well, so yeah. there's a lot going on here as Europe does yep, Europe's so doing thing. so that's the frame at which we're looking at this picture. So, a man named Bernard Rothman started saying really bad things about the church in Munster uh, and started to get a really large following, particularly among peasants. Of course More the church it. noticed this, and they didn't like it, and they tried to shut him down right away, and he was banned from speaking. So they wouldn't oh. let him go to any pulpits, they wouldn't let him speak in the corners, they oh. would, they just, you know. I was like thinking you meant that he like wasn't allowed to speak. Like they were like forced a vow of silence on him, and anytime like he talked, they just like smacked him with a ruler no. or something. No, it was more like public. Like don't incite the crowd. Oh, God, you've done it. Okay. But of course, that didn't stop it. Yeah. Know, there's a world, there's a world. So in February of 1532, uh, he was actually installed as the preacher at Saint Lambert's Church. Because a mob of his supporters that he drummed up pretty much like went to the city council and said, this is our guy. You need to let him speak. And so the city council folded and uh, gave him that. Speech. So the mob was. So later that year, a man named Franz von Waldeck was elected Prince Bishop, which is the highest ranking church official in the city. And von Waldock saw Rothman's popularity as a threat to the church, which, you know, that like there's a threat to the church, there's a threat to the position, so a threat to a and potentially with money. And okay. so, uh, you know, he took this as a slight. Yeah. Yeah. And Thank what you. he ended up doing was he used money to hire an army, so a mercenary army, to the siege of the city until Rothman was turned over. Um uh, so this is the first siege of New City. Uh this isn't the siege that we're looking for. Okay. So um so, they have all this pressure outside the walls, you know, get this guy out, whatever. Rothman's supporters made sure that this, this did not happen. Oh. They ended up, um, you know, pretty much taking the city council hostage, saying this guy's a guy, you're not going to give in. And uh, the people of Munster actually didn't waste time to go on the offensive once the city was received. So, on December 26th, uh, armed citizens and soldiers actually went. The proactive route and raided Von Waldeck's residence and made off with rich hostages during the oh. siege. And so, because the poor people had stolen some rich people, Von Waldeck was really forced to give in because, you know, they you don't stole want. the people, not their stuff. So they not their in. stuff. They want they, their they wanted the people. No. no but, yeah. I mean,
1: they okay. needed leverage.
0: I guess that's fair. I mean, the stuff wouldn't means. have given them the leverage that they needed. Yeah, random. And so I guess Well and and then what happens next? So von Waldeck was forced to give in, they actually signed a treaty of religious tolerance in February of fifteen thirty three. And this is crazy because it allowed Protestant pastors to preach from the parish churches, which when you're only twenty, you know, twenty five years out from the Protestant Reformation and you have a city that's open to Protestants preaching in diocese churches, that's a big thing. Okay. I guess that um, makes sense. Yeah, so obviously this is going to catch a lot of attention from, you know, folks that find this situation favorable and folks that don't. And there was a group of religious Dutch apocalyptic folk called Anabaptists. And they were constantly chased from town to town due to their Protestant beliefs. And it weren't they weren't just Protestant beliefs, they were crazy beliefs too. Okay. Um I'm not gonna get too much into that again if you want to be listen to hard focus. All right. Um but Rothman absolutely welcomed these newcomers. So they got to work, and they were able to rebaptize Rothman and these Anabaptists. They rebaptized fourteen hundred people in the town, and which was twenty percent of the town's population, which is absolutely crazy. Fourteen hundred, and I'm pretty sure that? they did this in a week. A week, okay. A I, week. I feel yeah. like I need to do some math. Hold on. Fourteen hundred in seven days was not like three hundred people. Yes, I'm putting two hundred people. I can do math. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's a lot of baptisms. It just seems like they were just like throwing people into the water. A lot of door knocking. Yeah. Did they? Is it a sprinkle baptism or full immersion? Do we you know? I don't know. I don't know that much about Lutheran. So if we have any Lutheran listeners, please tell us. Tell us how you baptize people. Yeah, because yeah. sprinkling makes more sense if they're just like tossing water at people, <laughs> like. People ew, just open ew. the door, That's just smack just, yeah. next door, you know, that would be it's awesome. Like throwing water literally at people's faces, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> but, like, if it's full immersion, they're just like tossing people into the water and then just like going to the next, so. Right, That's yeah, so. I mean, you'd have to do some sort of speed back business. I mean, it, yeah. it only makes sense. Okay. But, uh, okay, so I did get into, let's see, Lutherans baptized by sprinkling or pouring water on the head. So they could have done some, some speed oh, yeah. conversions. Thanks, Silent Partners, to uh-huh. All right. And so just a little bit of back, uh, background on the Anabaptists. What they were telling people was they thought that Jesus would come back the coming Easter. So keep in mind this is January. So this Easter, Je- Jesus is going to come back, and he will bring the end of the world as he does. I mean, I think he's um, going to come back any day, Easter should be the day, right? Right. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So – uh so these people were probably scared out of their minds that yeah. in four months, you know, they had to make a big decision. Yeah, that is a big one. In four months, everyone could die, be ready, get your right, together. Right. Yeah. And again, these were crazy times. So. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so, okay, and kind of stepping back again, those speed baptisms, that was only Rothman and a few of the Anabaptists. The bulk of the Anabaptists had not come to the city yet. They actually came in February and they were granted full religious freedom. Um, so not only were, like, Lutherans and Protestants granted freedom, but this extreme sect of, uh, Protestantism was also, uh, granted their religious freedom, which wow. caused obviously more Anabaptists to flood in in yes. crazy numbers. That's very progressive of Germany at the time. Well, it's more of this von Baldeck guy that's yeah. feeling pressure from the mob. I, okay, he definitely enough. didn't want to give them all the freedom. Yeah. But he just kind of, he wanted his power. He figured, okay, we'll let them have their day. I get my power. everyone's happy. Okay. And like, but, need to run off to the United States or America at the time. Everyone down. Right? right. Except America was, I think, a Dutch colony at this time. Yeah, so, um. Seeing the city become a lot more radicalized, uh Bishop von Baldeck purchased another army to defeat the city yet again, because he just wanted to reestablish Catholic control once and for all. So this yeah. is the siege that we wanted. Um During this particular siege, things within the city became very, very grim. So as the cult people took over, obviously they start, you know, implementing their cult rules and things get weird. I think one guy declared himself as like a god and he started wearing white. It gets it turns into a whole party. Yeah. Again, listen to hardcore history. Um, however, what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on what was going on outside the city now in the speech okay. that's where the booze comes into, right, into yeah. play here. So I was waiting for alcohol this whole time. Yes, yes, and they really messed up. With So soldiers were planning to attack the city um, the following morning. And as you can imagine, in the 1530s, when you're sitting outside of the city as a soldier, there's not a whole lot of stuff to do. So another part of that is there's anticipation for the upcoming attack. I'm sure your nerves are going, and you're super excited. And um, there was plenty of booze around. So yeah, when you yeah, have a bunch insane. of guys with nothing to do, but you roll in some kegs, <laughs> bad things and stupid things are going to happen to you. Yeah, no frat party can tell you that, right? Right, so, and day drinking always turns out okay. Yeah, there, there's so, never shenanigans when day drinking happens. Right, so the men start day drinking. Um, they figured, you know, they'd sit here, there, face themselves, things would be fine. But what ended up happening was it turned into a razor, oh. as they do does. Yeah, with kegs. So, yeah. before I go into what happens next, because it all happens kind of quickly, it's important to understand how pillaging works. Oh. I guess worked. I don't think people really pillage anymore. Yeah. Except ISIS. I think ISIS. So, yeah. while ransacking a town, the spoils are typically first-come-first-served. <laughs> okay. They don't save anything yeah, or keep things so aside funny. for you. So this means if you're late to the party, then you're not going to get the good stuff. Yeah. So if you pass out from drinking and doing tech stands, you don't get the first pick, right? Away. It's like the doorbuster deals on Black Friday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's only so much to get. Run everybody over. Get what? you. So back to our soldier party. These guys start drinking early in the morning. They're anticipating an attack the following morning, mm-hmm. and they're getting turned. So, what by sundown, what's that? What games do you think they're playing? What uh, they playing? You can't, I mean, I'm sure they're playing Beer Pong, yeah. Louisville Chugger. Like, um, circle of Death going on. Circle of Death, yeah, yeah all those, those 1535 drinking clubs. Or maybe Simon Says. Like, Simon know. Says, the Rock Sand drinking game to the, to the police. Russian Roulette? Yeah. Yep, there you go. <laughs> that could be it. Russian Roulette. Whatever the German version of that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I so, think they like Russians then. So probably not. No. Germans and Russians don't like each other much. Maybe they play but anywho, like, Red Rover. And, like, drunk Red Rover sounds stupid. Really but watching Drunk Red Rover sounds odd. I mean, I like that idea a lot. Yeah. But anywho, day drinking... By sundown, they were wrecked. Um About, yeah. So, their sense of time was also very off. Very okay. They drinking. And when they saw the sun go down, they thought the sun was actually coming up. Oh. And they panicked. Yeah. Because they thought that they were late to the raid and they did not want to miss the deals. Yeah. So, mm, a group of warriors, <laughs> they just, you know, panicked. They're probably like, throwing their armor on late and jumping around, you know, running as they're strapping their belts on and they're running towards the wall because they do not want to miss this. And of course you know, when you see a bunch of drunk idiots running for the wall and you're a drunk idiot, you're going to start running for the wall as well. Yeah. And so other soldiers in the encampment also started following these guys. Of course. And while these dudes may have felt like a million bucks, their fighting skills weren't you know, that same quality. Oh, you mean, and like, so, drunk, being drunk slows you down or something? Yeah, that's yeah, fine. your sharpness just gets a little bold. Ah, a, little bit. a little bit. Okay. I mean, but they wouldn't have so, much pain, so, you know. That's true. That's true, except the next, well, I guess they all died for so no.
1: the next Boilers. million
0: it really mattered. Yeah. Anywho, their drunken onslaught was quickly rebuffed by the city guys, so these guys just got whacked right <laughs> Um, Unfortunately for the people of Munster, this failed attempt to get in the city uh, just made things worse. And from here, things got really, 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 really bad. And um, what ended up happening to this whole uh, this whole rebellion is kind of anticlimactic. It kind of fizzled out, and people inside just got tired. And some dude ended up escaping the city finally and leading a secret group of people in there, and they they shut it down. Um, so, folks, to this day, idea. go to Munster, and if you go to St. Lambert's Cathedral and you see those two cages, it is because of this crazy rebellion, and um, there was this little fun alcohol story mixed in there, too. But until then, just remember this, if you are planning for raid and village, uh, leave your tags out. Yeah. Those cages are gnarly. Yeah. I mean, they're huge cages. I think yeah. they're seven feet tall, and... I mean, they're spacious for cages. Mm-hmm. Reminds me, they're not quite as, like, intricate. Like, have you ever seen the movie Willow? A long time ago, yeah. Like, in Willow, like, there's a guy, like, stuck into the cage, and you know, there's a bunch of skeletons and stuff there. It kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of that. Was but... he getting a Thor Ragnarok? Yeah, fair enough. So we got to go old school. In this movie. My niece may be listening to this, and I have to slowly introduce her. Do all of these things like I've been doing. Well, you're being a good one. All right. What do you have for us? What do I have for you? Um, hold on. Let me pull my notes up. So I have a kind of crazy story if my computer will load. So this one's already been told by a few podcasts before. Um, they've all done a pretty good job with this. So if you want to. Listen to some. The first one I heard it on was, and that's why we drink, which did an amazing job. They're super fun. They do like true crime and spooky ghost stories or okay. supernatural stories, so they're they're pretty fun. And they do a really good job telling this one. um Not sponsored. Yeah, we're we're not sponsoring them. They're just a great podcast. There's a couple other ones that have done it, like Criminal did it, The Dollop did it. If you want to listen to their episodes, go to that after you listen to this one, of course. Um, and let's hear it. So mine is about a man whose given name or his first name is Michael Malloy. However, he is also known as Iron Mike or Mike the Durable, or which name you're gonna love the most, the Rasputin of the Bronx right here. You'll see why in just a minute. Uh, Michael Malloy was born in approximately no wow, that word part, Approximately eighteen seventy three. Yeah? Yeah. How, uh The exact date is not super known because one, he was an Irish immigrant in New York City and it was like this story takes place in the 1930s and he was homeless and drunk at the time. So the history about him personally is a little bit yeah, sketchy. But so this was during the Great Depression, of course. And Michael Malloy had fallen on some hard times, as people did in the great Depression, of course. He had been a firefighter for New York City before this, but now he was an alcoholic and was homeless. And often resorted to doing odd jobs, such as sweeping alleys or collecting trash and that kind of thing. And would accept alcohol as payment instead of money most of the time. <laughs> you know, alcoholics gotta do what they gotta do. <laughs> and uh, he seemed to have no family around him or really any friends and was frequently found just drunk off his butt, like fall over drunk kind of thing. And which could be why he also had difficulty telling his own personal history. And well, I feel if like you accept booze for words. You've probably gotten to a point where your family's out of the picture. Yeah. it's probably true. And you probably don't have a ton of friends. No. Because hopefully your friends would be like, yo, maybe don't. I don't, I don't know. Or, or you did have friends and they were just like you and they died Yeah. Alcohol related. Or they all got tired of you being drunk all the time and were like, peace out. Right. Nobody likes to be around drunk all the time. Right. Like when you've been a bartender for way too long and it's just like you're working without getting paid, <laughs> and it's not. <laughs> so, um, he, Biffy champagne problem. I don't think he was drinking champagne because, great depression. Anyway, on this day, one day in July 1932, five men were kind of sitting around the speakeasy bar because it was still. Around Prohibition time, so it had to be a speakeasy and not a regular car, And they thought they had this genius idea, right? With Tony Marino, who owns the speakeasy, they were selling the bootleg whiskey, whiskey all the time. Speakeasy. He was lamenting to his friends Joseph Red Murphy and Francis Pasqua, or Pasqua. I don't. I'm not French, so I don't know. That times were not so good, and that he was discussing ways to easily make some money. And so Pasqua suggests to Marino, you know, to solve your problems, why not take out a life insurance policy on old Mike over here, the drunk, who's always in your bar. And let's not just do one, but maybe let's do three. Three life insurance policies? Does that sound good? Sounds legit. Yeah, it sounds super legit, right? Because he's inevitably, inevitable, wow, well, he's going to drink himself to death, right? And you sure. might as well just like kind of help him along the way. <laughs> and so Mike came to Tony's bar every day, of about, roundabout, and he would kind of drink until he just passed out on the street. And he was often drinking on credit, but since his tabs hadn't been paid, getting paid and Tony was having such a hard time with money, he was kicking Mike out of the bar quite frequently this time. He's like, leave, you're not paying me, go away. So when they came up with this idea, Tony was like, Well, he looks all in this is an exact quote actually. He looks all in. He ain't got much longer to go anyhow. This stuff is gonna get him. So <laughs> I mean he might as well of course him. it's okay. Yeah. We might as well take the insurance out. <laughs> And this was not Marino's first rodeo with life insurance. He had, the year before, befriended a homeless woman named Mabel Carson and convinced her to take out a life insurance policy for $2,000, which in 1930s money is a lot of money. It's a lot, right? And he, of course, was the sole beneficiary on that policy. And he fed her alcohol until she was beyond drunk, gave her all this alcohol until she was pretty much passed out, stripped her clothes off, put her to bed, and then splashed ice water all over her and the sheets and the mattress and everything that she was laying on, and then shoved that bed under a window. And apparently 2000 I just found that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> $2,000 is worth how much? $31,194.49. Wow. That's a lot of money. <laughs> so uh, you can go buy yourself a few. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess that's not a ton for like, a life of actually. But... No. I well, know. I mean, at the time, it was probably a pretty good... Yeah. Especially in the Great Depression. Right. So... <sighs> he died from those conditions of course because it was the winter and he had doused her with ice water and threw her under a window that is so sinister right? like are you kidding me yeah he and he was her quote-unquote friend right <laughs> like at least kill her in a better way yeah but like these right uh he collected the $2,000 of her life insurance without any trouble because he was also friends with the medical examiner who ruled for her death as bronchial pneumonia. Mm-hmm. You gotta have friends in high and low places. <laughs> and, and so he figured if I was able to do this before, Mike would probably be a pretty easy tar- target. Like he already drinks himself almost to death. I don't even have to feed him the alcohol. Let's just do it. And so they created what the media later dubbed as the quote-unquote murder trust. And that mm-hmm. included Perfect. Tony Marino, Pasqua, Red Murphy, the man named... The most Irish name uh, ever. Yes, there's a lot of Irish names in here. Um, Hershey Green, Daniel Kreisberg, and then some other petty criminals, because I guess the others weren't considered petty criminals when they killed people, but whatever. Uh, John McNally, Edward Tin Ear Smith, who apparently had a fake ear made out of wax. Uh, okay. I don't know where Tin comes in for that, but (laughs) uh, he uh, had a fake ear. (laughs) Then there was Tuck Tony Bastone and Joseph Maglioni, which all of them sound like mobsters. Quality people. people. Except, okay, so I I have to say, Hershey Green does not sound like he he belonged in that mix. Yeah. And you know exactly why. (laughs) (laughs) He actually was, uh, (laughs) a. he was actually brought in a little bit later, so he wasn't in the original murder trust. I'll show you, like, we'll we'll get to when he gets brought in. So he was kind of a second, not even a second thought, like a 20th thought. Their plan. Right. And so they went to work. They were going to make Mr. Mike, Mr. the Rasputin of the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, Mike, why did I, Molloy, I forgot his last name for a second. That was bad. Um, they were going to make him drink himself to death. And I think you're imagining probably some like middle aged, slimy mobsters dudes, you know, of course, it's the last petty criminals, right? Marino was only 27, and Pasquale was 24. <laughs> 24, so they weren't quite that traditional, like, godfather mobster you think of. They're both, like, slimy and greasy looking, but... But I think everybody at that time was kind of greasy looking. Yeah, I mean, they probably didn't shower too often. Unless you are like, William Randolph Hearst or something. Yeah. But Hearst was kind of greasy looking, too, because he was just as yeah. much. Okay, Andrew Carnegie was born? Yeah, he wasn't too bad I guess. Anyway, so these men, quote-unquote, befriended Malloy and started offering him free drinks with an unlimited bar tab. And then they also offered him a place to crash to kind of sleep over his, well, sleep off his hangers. So that was in the booth, back of the bar. So Malloy, who was used to just being kicked out of the bar recently because he couldn't pay, was like, cool, you're going to give me free drinks, unlimited tabs, and a place to sleep? Perfect. Let's do this. <laughs> and over the next five months, they convinced Malloy to take out three life insurance policies with double indemnity. So with an, that's an accident policy usually. Um, so he had one with MetLife and two with credentials, totaling around $3,500 for an accidental death. And I did do the Google on this one earlier. $69,000 in today's money. So. Still cool. not worth a homicide. Yeah, I mean, still not that much. And I'm over three insurance policies, I feel like they should have gotten a higher payout. But Good. whatever. So they were, of course, were going to cover the premiums for this insurance because Malloy didn't have any money. So that was part of their plan. And Pasqua apparently had some shady friends in the insurance world and the funeral world. And so he was able to give get those policies pretty easily. Like, these people knew people. I don't know how they networked to get all of these shady people who worked on their side, but... Well, anyway. how do you get that information out of them? Yeah. Like, how do you figure that out, that you have a unscrupulous friend that works at an insurance agency? I don't know. Or, like, my... That's sister. a very specific conversation. To yeah. Have. And... My friend works in the funeral district or funeral business. He, he'll help us do things. Like, kinda weird. I mean, do you just start joking about fraud with these people and see how they react to it? I don't know. I mean, the ones who were probably mobsters had a pretty group, like, good group of people, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just not a criminal, so I don't know how to do these things. But, they had friends oh. in all the right places. Them. So their plan was to have Murphy, Red, red Murphy, pretend to be Mallory Malloy's. My autocorrect changed it to Mallory. Sorry. Malloy's next of kin with the pseudonym Nicholas Mallory. And that's why it's correct And he was supposed to pretend that he was Malloy's brother. And he, his. Story was he was a florist and he would back up Malloy's death and he would identify the body and because Pasqua had friends in the funeral world he was able to be like yeah he's a florist for sure he he works with us all the time because people buy flowers from us I guess part of that I don't kind of weird so they just started at this point feeding Malloy endless supplies of alcohol. Thinking it would kill him quickly. But after three days of him drinking nonstop, pausing only occasionally to eat a sardine sandwich, which was <laughs> given to them or given to him by Tony Marino, he was still kicking. He was still going strong. He was like, give me more alcohol. We're good. Let's do this. And on the fourth day, he apparently stumbled back into the bar and was like, boy, ain't I got a thirst? <laughs> there was a quote in the uh, trigger, spoiler alert, they go to court. There's a quote from when they said that he said that. Foot. So the <laughs> man got a little impeachment. And so then they are like, let's start spiking his drinks. Because you can't just let him drink regular alcohol. Now. So the That's exact enough. ingredients for that, not super sure, because of course they were criminals, so they didn't tell the full truth.
1: <laughs> but right. there's
0: some reports that say it was antifreeze, turpentine, horse liniment, and rat poison. Which sounds great. <laughs> I want that in my body right now. so but, I mean, it might get rid of certain infections. Yeah, or cause them. Or cause them. <laughs> get rid of life. Get rid of life. <laughs> so, but other sources say that they would give him shots of wood alcohol, which is methanol distilled in wood. And it's so strong that drinking some, with even just like drinking 4% of yep. wood alcohol, causes blindness. Yep. And Mallory, or Malloy, oh I keep saying Mallory, apparently went. Yeah, sorry. No, not Malloy. Marino went to a nearby paint shop and bought the wood alcohol for 10 cents and carried it to the bar in a brown paper bag to be even more sketchy. He would give Malloy a few shots of whiskey to kind of numb his palate and get him feeling good. And then he would just switch that out for pure shots of wood alcohol. (laughs) He didn't even, like, kind of cut it a little bit. He just went straight, here's your wood alcohol. That's so hardcore. Right? I love it. And Malloy would just drink this and be fine. And the murder trust would watch with unbated breath, and he would just keep downing one shot after another, and he was fine. (laughs) He, after several nights of drinking straight wood alcohol, suddenly Malloy just dropped to the floor. And so the murder trust was like, yes, we did it. He's dead. Cool. We're going to collect our money. Let's do this. And then they heard Malloy just snoring. He had just passed out <laughs> and was asleep. And he woke up like three hours later and he's like, give me some of that old regular, you lad. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kept going. This man could not <laughs> die. Like, he like, you want me to drink myself to death? I'm Irish fight me. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's not just Irish right? Like, to drink wood alcohol, you have to be some super Irish yeah he he's pickled his body at this point, probably he, he's good, so this plot to kill Malloy was starting to get really expensive, right They were pay, they were paying for his premium, they had been feeding him alcohol for days and days, they had to buy. Wood alcohol, then they were feeding him that, and he probably drank all of it, so they had to replenish it, right? And he was literally, like, Marino was literally worried that this was gonna cause him to go bankrupt, because (laughs) it was costing him so much money after a few months. And so Tough Tony, well, Tough Tony wanted to just shoot more. He was like, let's just get this over with, cut this off. And Marino and Tesco were like, no, because then we can't get the accident part of it. That's murder. You can't do that. And so they came up with the next idea where they were going to soak oysters in denatured alcohol for a few days and feed those to Malloy. <laughs> and so they did that. And Malloy just ate them one by one and then washed them down with this wood alcohol. <laughs> so the crew just played Pinochle watching him, like, waiting for him to die or get indigestion or, like, Fall over or something, and he just licked his fingers, burp, and then drank some more. It was totally good. You know what they should have done to supplement the money they were spending trying to kill this guy? Is they should have had like a pool. On the <laughs> like a dead pool? Yeah, on what's gonna kill this guy. Yeah. At this point, of course, cause obviously it's not gonna be alcohol, right? Like, and I feel at this point you'd make more money from the death pool than yeah. you would from actually the insurance payout. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> So Murphy then decided that he was going to open a can of sardines, let it sit for a few days just rotting, add some glass, some pieces of metal that may have included tacks, and then put that between two pieces of bread and give that to Malloy as a sandwich. Because he likes sardine sandwiches, we already know that. Yep. So they were like hopefully this metal will just tear up his intestines and the rotten meat will make him sick on top of it so the metal will just screw him up, right? <laughs> uh No, Maury ate the whole thing and then asked for another one and was good to go. So oh, They, sh- they should have known. Right, like at this point they should have been figuring out that feeding him anything was not going to kill him because he has an <laughs> apparent magic stomach. <laughs> the iron stomach of the gods? Yeah, he's good to go. Like, we have a friend that is a functional alcoholic and you say he can't get sick because he's just pickled all of his organs at this point. I kind of wonder if Malore is like that. Buddy, if you're out there, I'm not gonna feed you wood alcohol. Yeah, we we will not give you wood alcohol. And no we're not talking about you, Swifty. Uh, it's a friend of a mutual friend of mine and Jared's, but we love him. Hopefully he doesn't drink wood alcohol. <laughs> Anyway, so Marino remembered his last insurance scheme where he let his friend freeze to death under a window. right? So they're like, let's go with that plan. It's winter at this point. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so they talked, after Malloy had had his share of alcohol, it was pretty much the pass out point, they tossed him the, pack, the back of Pesquah's car, drove him to a park, put him through snow, and put him on a park bench, took off all his clothes, and then dumped bottles of water all over him and (laughs) left him there to die. And Malloy was passed out and just let it happen. He was like, all right. He was drunk. Didn't even know what was going on. When uh, Marino came to his feetie the next day, he found Malloy half frozen in his basement. He had trekked the half-mile back from the park, mostly naked, got into the speakeasy, and let himself in. And all he had a complaint of was a wee chill. He He was good. So this was January at this point, and February was coming up, and they had another insurance payment due. And they were like, how are we going to pay this? We can't do this anymore. And so John McNally was like, "Let's run him over with a car. That's an <laughs> accident. Let's just do this." And old Tenier Smith was apparently like, "This doesn't sound like a good idea." But everybody else was like, "Let's try it." I mean, what, what do we have to lose? Might as well. Yeah. Done so everything else. Maglioni offered to get a cab driver which his friend Green, who was. Is- the guy who I said, does, said doesn't doesn't yeah. fit in, yeah. And they told him that they would give him a cut of the insurance money of a hundred and fifty dollars to run this guy over. <laughs> okay, so they all got into the cab. This whole weird menagerie of men got into the cab with Malloy across his lap, pretty much. And Green drove a few blocks down and stopped, and then they picked up Malloy. And held him up crucifixion style with outstretched arms and gun, or Green gunned the engine towards him while everyone kind of braced for impact and Malloy ended up jumping out of the way twice. <laughs> <laughs> and on the third attempt, Green was like, screw this and floored it at 50 miles an hour. And they all just kind of, like, covered their eyes waiting for him to be run over. And so they hit him, hit him hard, he fell to the ground, and then they ran over the back of him. Like, they backed up over him again, just for good measure. And <laughs> they were like, okay, he's got to be dead. But another car was coming, so they couldn't confirm that he was dead. And they took off, because they were scared of that other car seeing them. I can see him popping up, like, P 1000 and chasing him down the highway. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't, like, zombie-style run after them after this, but <laughs> they thought he was dead. They, they hit him going pretty fast and ran over him again, and this fell to now to Murphy to be Nicholas Mallory, right? Let's be your brother. And so he had to call all the morgues and hospitals to try to find this missing sibling. No one knew anything about it. There, he was not in any of the hospitals. He was not in any of the morgues. There were no reports of a fatal accident. Anything. So for five days they were searching for him. And Pascal was like, "Let's just kill another drunk person and say it's him, so we can get this money at this point." <laughs> and they were like, "No, we're gonna wait. just wait a little bit more." And five days later, he walks into that bar. And he was limping, he was bandaged, he looked had a fractured skull, a fractured shoulder, and just was like, I'm here for another drink. Rub some dirt on it. Yeah. And he couldn't remember anything of what happened. He said he remembered the taste of whiskey, the cold (laughs) slap of night air, a glare of rushing lights, and then nothing. The next thing he knew, he was in a warm bed in a hospital. And all he wanted to do was get back to the bar to drink some more. <laughs> Life goes right there. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm fine. So, <laughs> at this point, it is the middle, actually, almost the end of February. It's February 21st, 1933. The gang was over this. Thing. Like, we've got to kill this guy now. <laughs> How do right. we kill them? It has been seven months. And so after he passed out for the night and got drunk, they took him to Murphy's house. This is really messed up. They put a hose in his mouth that was connected to a gas jet, turned yeah. it on, and then wrapped a towel around his face. Yeah. That's yeah. Well. Yeah. That's cool. yeah, he did die from that. It took an hour. Yeah. But he did do, do it. Do you know what kind of gas it was? Uh. I didn't find them, but, but they, he finally died less than a mile from the speakeasy on a 168th street in Murphy's house, I guess. And a friend of Pasqua, who was a doctor named Frank Manzella, filed a phony death certificate citing Lobar pneumonia as the cause of death. So, at this point, the gang was only able to receive $800 from the MetLife insurance policy. And (laughs) I don't know exactly what happened with the other at that point, but they didn't divide it very evenly through the, like, 27 people now involved. (laughs) And. They fought over who's going to get what and everything, and then apparently Murphy and Marino were like, let's go get some new suits, and that's what they did with their money and, like, flaunted these new suits around town. Cool. And so Pasqua went to the prudential office, confident he could collect the money from these other two policies, and the agent looked up and goes, when can I see the body? And Pasqua was like, we already buried him. I don't know. What? Why would you not see him? The insurance agent was like, that's a problem. And call the police. <laughs> <laughs> and the police had already heard rumors of this raspy Mike in all over the town. Of course people are like, this guy you won't die. They like of course I'm right. sure these people couldn't keep their mouth shuts about the mouth shut about their plan and were like, We're gonna make this guy die, blah blah blah. And they um so they heard so upon learning that Michael Malloy had died that night, the, and the report from the insurance company, the police were like, okay, we're getting, we're gonna exhume his body and we're gonna examine him. And the autopsy, of course, proved that the death certificate was wrong and he didn't actually die of pneumonia. And so an investigation happened. And Green, who was the cab driver and only got $150 and was not super stoked about his cut, started talking immediately. <laughs> Yep, and the police then discovered that the homeless woman had died in Reno's CTV under suspicious circumstances, and all of that. And so they were like, "Okay, we got to investigate even further." Um, so separate matter, tough Tony Bastone was shot dead during this time by Maglioni, and so they he was charged with this murder. So he was in prison, and Bastone was dead at this time. So kind of side note. So they they never went had had charges pressed against them, but so, so, but there was enough evidence to arrest everybody else, so Frank Fitzlaw Tony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, Joseph Murphy, or Red Murphy, whatever you want to call him, appeared at the Bronx County Courthouse, and at first they tried to plead insanity, and when that didn't work, they were like, he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it, Like <laughs> try to implement uh, implicate each other, and finally they were like, like, Tony did it, He did it. It, The guy who—he's dead, he can't defend himself. He's the one who did it. It wasn't us. (laughs) And that didn't work out for any of them. So in June and July of 1934, Pasqua, Marino, Kreisberg, and Murphy were all executed by Old Sparky at the the Electric Church in prison. And Green was the only member of the Murder Trust who escaped execution and was just sent to prison. For how long? It didn't say. I think he got life, but none of the reports said exactly how long. And one, this is kind of funny. So one of the reports about it said, perhaps the grinning ghost of Michael Loy was present in the Bronx Bronx County Courthouse. The charter members of the murder trust were sent to the electric chair at Sing Sing, which killed them on the very first try. (laughs) (laughs) And. Uh, Malloy's death made history. He was featured in the Poisoner's Handbook as one of the first cases investigated by the medical examiner in New York City. And he was buried, officially buried in his resting place. And all of his glory was, is in the Ferncliff Cemetery in Mausoleum in Hartsdale, in New York. So he's fine with he finally took the rest. Most of his murderers were, are dead they're dead now but we're executed if there's ever a dude who gravy visit and pour one out for a staff yeah I feel like you need to get like shit you need to get super super drunk and then pour one out in honor right. of <laughs> so there's been some pop culture things made about his memory and his story so there's a documentary that was made in 2015 called Name Your Poison and it was mm-hmm. on Iler- Ireland's Irish language TV channel and it was about Malloy, and there's a instrumental piece by the Spent Poets, which is called "You Can't Kill Michael Malloy," and Primus has part of that song in, in their album "Frizzle Fry." Yeah. In 1993, a play based on Malloy's murder was made, and it's titled "The Killing of Michael Malloy" by Eric Jen but, um And Michael Malloy is the name of the song. Like, there's a bunch of songs, and I'm going to go through them all. Um, And his murder was featured on an episode of BBC in series QI in 2011. So he is the indestructible Mike Malloy, and he is Rasputin of the Bronx. So this definitely needs to be a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. Without a doubt. And then we also should start a GoFundMe to get a statue of the Yeah, probably. I bet we could get. And one. I'm I'm kind of incensed in that there isn't one already. I mean. Yeah, especially with all the stuff that's been written about him or right. in his story. He's a whole hero. Yeah. He's a machine. Iron stomach. <laughs> I, well, that story is crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't even know. Like, I've never, of course, tasted wood alcohol, so I wonder how awful that would be. It probably tastes a lot like Everclear. Probably, maybe, whatever. No. Earthy. earthy. <laughs> <laughs> because it tastes very earthy. I'm getting some juniper. Yeah. Some notes, some a fresh soil. <laughs> well cool um, So, yeah that that's our alcohol story today. If you have any other if you want to share your crazy alcohol stories, you can send them to us at our gmail, which is wild wild what p f at gmail dot com if you want to tweet about them at us, you can as well and that is wild wild what p f at twitter, or I will be posting pictures of there's actually not a lot of pictures. Like, I don't think there's any pictures of Michael Molloy, actually, but I can post some of his slimy, greasy murderers. Post some of those, I guess. And... Oh, <laughs> apparently, I don't think I'll post that picture. Sissy says he found a picture of the autopsy and his dead body, so. Yeah, we're um, not putting that up. Yeah, no. Good. <laughs> but you can look at our Instagram, which is Wild Wild Web PS <laughs> <blood, yes>, Podcast. <laughs> And thanks for listening. It's All right. Well, we'll catch you next time, folks. Yeah. See you later. Bye. Bye.